For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are speaking to the author of We Will Win the Day, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Athlete, and the Quest for Equality. He's a professor of history at Grand Valley State, and he's got a forthcoming magnum opus on black quarterbacks and their history in the National Football League. His name is Dr. Lewis Moore. And of course, we're speaking to him because of all the news this past week, whether it's around Lamar Jackson's contract, Uh, the record number of black quarterbacks taken among the first five picks in the draft. This is who we are going to speak to, Lou Moore. I can't think of anybody I'd rather speak to to untangle the politics of what we've been seeing in this last week. But there's more to the world than Lamar Jackson in the NFL draft and the NBA playoffs and all the obsessions with which uh, we follow right now. There is also what's happening in France, uh, protests, Uh, the forthcoming the Olympics, how these things come together. I'm going to be speaking about that as well. But first, let's talk to the man himself, Dr. Lewis Moore. Hey, Dr. Moore, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, Look, this is a podcast for people who care about the issues of sports and social justice and how they intertwine historically and in the present day. Why should people who have that bent care about the quarterback being a black man oh wow that's a great question um because i think i think for the longest time people cared right and i want to say longest we'll go back to like the 1950s when it became noticed that there hadn't been a black starting quarterback and so since that moment you have people who care about this mainly the black community say wait a minute why isn't there a black starting quarterback in the NFL, and there's only a few in uh, college at that time, not not counting, you know, the HBCUs, right? And the reason why they cared is because of what the quarterback symbolized. It symbolizes brains. It symbolizes leadership. And so in a post-World War II America, in a civil rights era, with the most popular position in all of sports, the most important position of all of sports, Black Americans wanted somebody in that position that you could point to, to say, hey, look, we have the smarts, we have the skills, we have everything, and merit actually does matter. One of the things I talk about, um, there's this case, 1957, Wisconsin had a black quarterback, Sid Williams, and it was one of the big stories because this kid, Sid Williams, was from Little Rock. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, Little Rock was fighting against integration, right, the Jerry Joneses of the world. Here's this black kid from Little Rock playing at this white school with, you know, I think they only had like two other black players on the team. And the media ate it up because it's a symbol, right? And so the white media saw it as a symbol of democracy and progress, whereas the black media saw it as something else. Like, see, we can be in these positions. He's just the beginning of it. And so from that moment on, 
it's been understood that for black Americans, this is an important position because of what the quarterback represents in American society. Mm. And what does it represent that for people like my son, who is 14, 15, oh my God, he just turned 15, and uh, cares about the issues that we talk about on this podcast, what does it mean for someone like him to grow up and have that barely be a question? Are we at the point where we should perceive it as barely a question? It was just a couple years ago that people were questioning whether Lamar Jackson can be a quarterback. And part of that's not his athleticism. It's not his skill set. It's his mind, right? It's his leadership. It's this idea, are we comfortable with somebody like that being in the most important positions. It was just three years ago that they did that with Jalen Hurts. So we're not totally there yet. Um, but we're getting there. And part of the reason why we're getting there is because there's a shift, right? This reality in professional football, in the most popular sport, that, you know, these guys can play this position. And it's almost admitting that the whole time you could have, like, changed your system for them, right? That's why Jalen Hurts was so important right that that they philadelphia had a system for him they ran with it and it succeeded and that's rare in american society that you'll say you'll move heaven and earth for this black guy because you believe in it and i think that's why it's important right because we're moving in a in a society where it is very integrated right it's going to be more at some point it's going to be more uh poc than it is white and i think kids need to grow up understanding that you have to be comfortable in leadership and understanding that no longer are we in the days when a leader is not only to be like this, this white guy, this Tom Brady. Mm. What does it mean both symbolically and in practice that in the recent NFL draft, you have three of the first, what was it? Four picks. Three of the first four. Three of the first four picks being black quarterbacks in a range of black quarterbacks. Like sometimes we talk about it way too, like essentialistically, if that's a word, like Bryce Young is super different quarterback than CJ Stroud. And then you have this amazing uh, clear project and Anthony Richardson, and yet they're not classified as a one. They're seen as uh, different players with different traits, at least in the coverage that I saw. And please correct me if I'm being. No, 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 you're right. And I think that's where we see the progress because for a while there was this kind of typecast, right? At first, like if you look at the history, Marlon Briscoe, who plays in 1968, is this outlier. He's five foot 10. He's a four, five, 40 guy. NFL only wanted classic statues, right? Six four guys, right? So Doug Williams, six four, James Harris, six four, even Joe Gilliam was six three. Um, so you don't get a speedy black quarterback, this stereotypical speedy black quarterback after Briscoe until Vince Evans comes in in the late 1970s. And then again, you'll get Randall Cunningham, and that will start to shift where you'll start to get more speed guys. But now, like you said, we're seeing this change where there is this race. There's the small Bryce Young, who's this amazing pocket passer there's cj shroud who's he's got decent athleticism but it doesn't pop and then there's richardson who's this project uh, like you said who's oh my gosh six four 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 forty two hundred and probably forty pounds he's just this if he makes it it changes everything right um but i think the progress is because the nfl has finally 
waking up. They used to be wedded into this idea that a quarterback can only look one way, and they ignored so many guys. Um, like I said in what a book, what I write about is this idea that integration and innovation in the 1970s really hurt the black quarterbacks because the NFL didn't see it that way, right? The college system changed and you have, you know, guys like Condres Holloway or you have other guys like Gaffney who's plays for Florida or Holloway plays for Tennessee, but the system of that innovation and integration, right? The innovation, the veer, the wishbone, the triple option, they're using these black quarterbacks, but the NFL is like, Nope, we just want classic. And now finally, because I think, because they've, 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 they've woken up, right? It's a new day, but also because the way contracts works, you got to pay these guys. And so you got to get what the college gives you. And so you're, you're seeing an opportunity that you wouldn't see in the past because the NFL teams need to play these dynamic guys right away. You know, maybe I, I like, maybe it's the, the fiction lover in me. I like moments and moments where the dam breaks was there a particular moment where you feel like there was a fundamental shift? Because it wasn't Doug Williams uh, lead, leading Washington into a Super Bowl when a lot of people thought it might be. What was the moment, if any, that you think changed the perceptions to where we are today, even if we're not at the finish line, but the progress that has, is clearly being made? Yes, such a tough one right because i like you i like moments like my book is about a moment it's like the first game that two black quarterbacks play against each other um and then you have the doug williams moment and then you have i think that 1999 moment where you have uh um cole pepper getting drafted you have mcnab you have Achilles smith right there's all these different moments Vic going number one eventually but i think this year changes everything right because february you have Mahomes, you have Hurts, just like this draft, different styles of guys, right? Mahomes is this gunslinger. Jalen Hurts is this guy who's part of, I don't want to call him a system quarterback in a negative way, but it's a system quarterback in a beautiful way in the sense that his team built around him. And that's, we don't see that. And I think that's why Hurts being in the Super Bowl, doing so well, changes a lot of things. That gets a guy like Richardson the number four pick. And I think that's going to get other guys more opportunities. So February and then now late April, I think it's a huge moment in, the, in how the NFL will start to look. The other big news out of the front of uh, the state of the black quarterback, of course, is the headlining news, bigger than the draft, Lamar Jackson re-signing Baltimore Ravens. What does this mean in terms of maybe not just the evolution of the black quarterback, but also the evolution of player power in the place we never thought it would go, uh, the National Football League? Yeah, so this is this one's so interesting to me because I, I think you'll like this idea. I thought it would have been a perfect time for Hertz, Jackson, Burrow, and Herbert to get together and collectively say, nah, we want more gear. We want that Deshaun Watson deal. Whereas the NFL was trying, and I think you wrote about this too, was the NFL was really trying to steer away, right? right? It's almost like they were colluding against Lamar so that he couldn't go on the open market and get that deal. But it turns out 
$179 million, $185 million guaranteed is a lot of money to turn down, right? Um, so so I was looking at it that way, like, man, these guys have this real opportunity because there's four super young quarterbacks who need to get paid and they can reshift the market. Uh, but they kind of they did they didn't do it. And I understand it because that's a lot of money. Um, but yeah, so that's that's where that's where I was looking at it. But the other thing what's interesting to me is that we always have had, I think since Moon, Warren Moon comes in in 1984, that the black quarterback comes in and sets the, the market. Um, Moon did it as like a free agent coming from Canada as the first really official true free agent in, in NFL history. And that's because to be able to play still, you have to be dynamic. There's still that idea that you have to be twice as nice, right? And so if you look at the list of the top paid quarterbacks it's filled with black quarterbacks but if you go beyond that list there's not too many guys who are still getting those you know that that backup role that third string role right um so guys like a josh johnson who we recently saw playing for the 49ers he's an amazing story right because he's just a career backup mm -hmm. um and that doesn't uh often happen for the black quarterback or tyrod taylor who's just I think you, I mean, you had him in Baltimore, right? He's just a career backup. Occasionally starts, something bad happens, and he doesn't start. That's rare. Um, but again, these guys are dynamic, so I would expect to see them always getting top dollar. Wow. That, that, that's a really interesting perspective. What about the part of Lamar not using an agent? How threatening is that to the powers that be? I mean, as you know, you probably saw the, the line that Lamar said about it's $7.8 million and it's going right to his mother. And he said, we're going to keep it in the family. Right. And, and, and that's so interesting. So someone like you who wrote the Jim Brown book, right? Look how far we've come. Yeah. Uh, um, because when Brown came in, he didn't he come in with an agent? He and was the first. Right. 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 And now he didn't negotiate his contract. And that was seen as wildly progressive that he was able to push right. that through. Right. Because the parent, the, the, they wanted all the power. The owners wanted all the power. Right. And, and I think now, you know, being able to negotiate on your own terms, like uh, Tunsil, I believe, who's the offensive tackle for the Houston, Texas, is his own agent. Being able to, to do that on your own terms, that's a powerful thing. Right. Now, people, knocked him and i and and i think they were carrying a lot of the nfl water right they knocked lamar like oh he doesn't have someone negotiating and that's but in the at the end of the day he won because he has the talent right and he has the smarts and he understands he bet on himself right mm -hmm. and i and i don't know what the nfl thinks about that or the amount of black agents coming up i think a lot of the top hit players this year uh all had black agents too um, and that's a major shift. And so you're going to you start to see a lot more of this kind of power dynamics, whether it's, you know, Jalen Hurts come, you know, having a black woman as an agent or Lamar, essentially a black woman using his mom and himself. Um, the power dynamic is shifting. And, and I don't know how the NFL is going to respond. My guess is they think they're going to try to outsmart them. But it, but but we'll see. It didn't work on Lamar's case. They just I still believe they colluded against them. I'll, I'll, I'll always stick stick to that. Yeah. Um, but a yeah, quick, a quick word about that. I mean, when Colin Kaepernick was trying to prove collusion, they, they got so arcane, like, well, there must be a note on a fortune cookie that was shared with someone else at a particular right. restaurant. That's the only way we can say it's collusion. Meanwhile, in this case, 
they are literally making pronouncements that they are not going to talk to him. Or they right, right. It was talk. crazy, yeah. yeah. Like, like, like the, the daily pronouncements of we will not right, have. Right, right. That's, that's well, they're, they're basically colluding in open sight. They're like, hey, right, how you doing? Right. Yeah, you're not going to have him either. Right, and I, I wrote this quick piece about how this was a reminder of what happens like Tim Raines, really, and, and it happened to Andre Dawson the same year. Coming off that 86 year into 87, Raines is a free agent, and he's like, his numbers are out of the park, right? And he should have commanded so much money, and everybody offered him less than what Montreal did. Um, and he actually won. A year later, he wins his case, and then after he wins his case, um, so before he wins this case, he has to sign with Montreal for less money. Someone like Dawson, that's why he signs with the Cubs um, at a, a terrible rate. Like, he lost millions of dollars. But Tim Raines made them pay after that. He's like, all right, I won my case. Now I'm re-signing this contract, right? And you have to pay me even more money. I was like, okay, Lamar's going to do the same thing. They're colluding against him. But when it's time to make him pay, he's going to make him pay. Um, but that's I, – I can't stand that franchise tag because it is – it limits the mobility of these guys, right? Of someone like Lamar, who's who's worth way more than one hundred and eighty-five million dollars guaranteed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just in terms of what he generates, in terms of uh, fan interest, you know. Right. I, speaking of fans, I just your reaction to this. You know, Baltimore. Uh, you know, I've been to a ton of the games. You know, a lot of friends into the Ravens. Uh, it's there's a significant I mean it's multiracial but there is a significant weight of a Maryland white fan base here like that that is a dominant feature of like the people who show up at the games tailgating the whole thing and and it's not Buffalo like let's not get it twisted you know right (laughs) it's it's not exactly Oakland either God rest its soul um so Here's the thing. There was this poll done by the biggest talk radio station. And um, and it was like, get rid of Lamar was winning like by a three to two margin, like 60-40. Wow. Then it was going up to 70-30. Every, every you know, when Lamar said the thing about wanting to go to a new team, it was terrible, terrible. It kept getting uglier and uglier. And the day after... He signed, are you very happy, not happy, whatever. It was 83% happy. Oh, gosh, yeah. That's crazy. That's what they do. That's what they do. I mean, if you look, Joe Gillum, when he was at Pittsburgh, they put a poll out, right? The newspapers put a poll, and he lost to, to, to Bradshaw and other guys, and he was like 6-1 and one that year um, when you count. I mean, so he was like – but that happens to these black quarterbacks, right? Um but then at the same time, they were just mad because Lamar wanted that. It sounds like they were mad because Lamar wanted power. Exactly. Right? No, I and think they were going to power, and they can't shows. stand out. That's just what it is, yeah. It shows a, a definite siding with team over this individual who's, you know, given his all and won 75% of, it, of, your, of the games. It's like everyone got down with the organization and the establishment and – Steve Bishotti and and Harbs and DaCosta, EDC, you know, the the, the whole mentality uh, to me was was really reactionary. And then once he's back in the fold, it's you know fans are fickle, right? And that <laughs> always makes it hard for the players, right? Because 
the fans will always side for some reason. They'll always side with the owners, and it doesn't make it doesn't make sense to me. No matter what you've done, um, well, uh, Doctor Lewis Moore. I mean, I got to tell you, thank you so much. Is there anything we're missing? No, I think he you hit it. No, no, I'm ready to watch round two and and round three or whatever. See, so. Well, well, you I know you're a busy guy, busy dad, busy professor, busy writer, uh, busy husband. All of these things. Right. <laughs> Let's not forget that. Um, but I also know you listen to music, and we always ask the folks on the show what they're listening to these days. Can you give us anything? Oh, man. So yesterday I had the house to myself and I put on my old school E40. Uh, so wow. so I am, you know, I still listen to the old stuff. So sorry I didn't go East Coast this time for you. Um, but I did admit I did listen to Tribe. Then I listened to E40, if that helps. That's so it was Midnight Marauders. And then it was, um, I forget which E40 album, but it has the clock on it. It's early 90s. So, yeah. Amazing. So I know who you're rooting for. Uh, the scene. Uh, you know, don't judge me because I lived in Sacramento before I came out here and I lived through the good years and it, I, you know, I don't know. I kind of want to see them. So okay. we'll see. There you go. Yeah. That's who I, I want to see. I want to see the young kids. Just give me a game seven. That's all I, at this point. Oh, I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm putting my chips there too. Uh, Dr. Moore, thank, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Be well. We'll be back after from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look. The slogan is no withdrawal, no Olympics. And this is spread across social media in France after their president, Emmanuel Macron, signed a law raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. Hundreds of thousands have taken to the streets in fiery, literally fiery protest. Macron, who undemocratically fast-tracked this legislation, has seen his popularity slump like a wet baguette. A recent poll showed that if last spring's election between Macron and far-right candidate Marine Le Pen were replayed today, the neo-fascist would trounce the centrist president 55 to 45%. I mean, he's so unpopular that activists even torched the awning of one of his favorite brasseries. And that is fighting words in France. Now. That slogan, no withdrawal, no Olympics, really speaks to the mood of the country. Danielle Simonet, a member of France's National Assembly from the left-wing populist party La France Insoumise, which means France Unbowed, told Jules Boykoff and me that the new law signals an authoritarian drift under Macron, and that linking the pension law and the Paris 2024 Olympics indicates, quote, 
a deep political crisis marking a strong aspiration for a sixth republic so that the president stops behaving like a monarch against the people. Simone added, connecting the rejection of the Olympics with the rejection of the pension law marks the level of popular awareness of the same logic that underlies them, a policy for the profits of a handful at the expense of the overwhelming majority. Last month, a French labor union cut power to Olympic sites, including the Olympic Village and the Stade de France Stadium, the Olympic Stadium, to protest the French Senate's vote in favor of the law. Now with the law on the books, calls to disrupt the preparations for the Paris Games, if not the actual Olympics themselves, are ricocheting across France. Paris-based anti-Olympics activist Natuko Sasaki told us that people in France use this slogan because they think sabotaging the games is a good idea to make Macron lose face. Sasaki, who's an organizer with the anti-Olympics group Saccage 2024, noted that the upsurge presents a political education opportunity for activists. Sasaki said, People who use the hashtag may not know that some dedicated anti-Olympics activists like myself have been working for years. Many of them may not know workers' gardens were destroyed for an Olympic training pool. Immigrant workers lost their homes for the sake of the Olympic Village. A new on-ramp for the Games runs directly alongside a school in Saint-Denis-Pleyer. A public park was privatized for the Media Village. They may not know that France became the first European country that now allows AI video surveillance, and it's for the Games. Because the Olympics touch so many parts of the host cities, the Games animate activists who are already working on an array of issues, from gentrification to ecological sustainability to the economy. Activists tend to form anti-Games coalitions in the lead-up to the Games, but then once the Olympics end, these coalitions dissipate as protesters slide back into their everyday activism. When you add the efforts to repress these activists through special rules and laws passed for the Olympics, it starts to look like a game of activist whack-a-mole. Before and during the 2012 London Summer Olympics, activists demonstrated against gentrification and intensified policing in the five host boroughs for the Games. Racial justice protesters also used the Olympics to raise awareness of racist policing in their communities, like in Rio de Janeiro. Also in Rio, protesters rallied against the displacement of people whose homes and favelas were being destroyed. That was, of course, for the 2016 Games. And in Tokyo, protesters marched repeatedly before the pandemic hit against greenwashing and the misspending of public money. Macron really deserves much of the credit for turning the Olympics, which were largely flying under the social radar in France, into a target for activist ire. Benoit Breville summed it up this way. Macron, quote, imposed his pension reform brutally ignoring a protest movement whose size and determination he should have been able to grasp. This juxtaposition of shrinking pensions and a lavish sporting spectacle makes for an obvious symbol of anti-Macron sentiment. The question facing France is going to be who benefits politically from this collision of an anti-Olympics movement with working class anger. The left needs to be a home for French discontent. If it does not become one, the right, as it did in Brazil, can swoop in, fasten itself on the issue of Olympic corruption, linked, of course, to racist scapegoating, and find a path to power. Polls show support for left-wing initiatives like protecting pensions, but it's Le Pen who is leading in the polls. 
The mere thought of Le Pen in power should be enough to make sure that anti-Olympics rage is used to organize movements for hope and not divisive despair. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to one of the ugliest stories of our time, which is the oppression of transgender people in this country and the push to oppress transgender people in this country. Well, one of the stories that I can't believe hasn't gotten a bigger play uh, is the fact that Dwayne Wade's child, who is trans, uh, lives a very open, very proud life. Dwayne Wade and his wife, uh, Gabrielle Union, have been very supportive. Uh, But Dwayne Wade is also having to move outside Florida with his family because he says he sold his Florida house because of anti-trans laws in the state. Now, let's talk about this for a second, because this isn't getting talked about nearly enough. Dwayne Wade, who is iconic in Florida, iconic in Miami, who is set to be inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, has left Florida because of the targeting of trans people. Now, let's really talk about this for a second, because just stand up to Dwayne Wade for not only leaving Florida with his family, but being loud and proud about the reasons why, but also sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. To every single person in the sports community uh, in Florida. This is Dwayne Wade we're talking about. This is an institution. Everybody in the sports world should be saying, what a comment on our society that someone like Dwayne Wade is being forced to leave his home. How is that not a bigger issue? for everybody in Florida, from uh, Mickey Arison, the owner of the Miami Heat, to Florida legends like Shaquille O'Neal, to Derek Jeter, who runs the Miami Marlins, of course. Why aren't they speaking out? And the answer to that question, to me, is political cowardice. So thank you, Dwayne Wade, for being brave. And to the other sports folks, the other sports titans in Florida, get your game up, please, and support. Uh, your fellow Florida icon. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you to Professor Lewis Moore. It's such a fascinating topic. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.